TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Hoodwinked in the Hothouse, The Women, Jackie Patterson, U.S., Ariel Deranger, Canada, and Monica De Oro, Pacific Islands. This is another webinar on indigenous resistance to climate false solutions. It was co-sponsored by the New School in New York City with the Indigenous Environmental Network as key organizer. Ariel Deranger, Monica De Oro, and Jackie Patterson speak of their experiences fighting climate change from the grassroots and within indigenous communities from Canada, the Pacific Islands, and from the U.S. As you will hear in a moment, their common experience is founded in the need to recognize and fight false solutions. For example, an indigenous community gets an offer to replant the mangrove forest on the coast. Everybody is happy until they trace the money and realize that a giant fossil fuel company takes the planted trees for carbon credits, which allow them to drill more oil, raising the sea level that will swallow the mangroves. The free booklet, Hoodwinked in the Hothouse, Resist False Solutions to Climate Change, emerged from and in turn supports the campaigns of indigenous peoples. It is a living document of decades of experience, updated just recently in preparation for COP26, the climate conference in Glasgow. Ananda Tan is North America Coordinator for the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives. He's introducing Jackie Patterson. Next, I'd like to... Uh invite our other panelists and then starting with Jackie Patterson of the Chisholm Legacy Project. Many of you know her formerly as the director of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. I must say Jackie embodies environmental justice principles in ways that I see in very few people. My deepest admiration for the way she has diligently supported some of the poorest, most impacted communities around the U.S., you know, quietly doing her work, supporting them. You know, people wouldn't believe the insane hours this woman keeps in driving from community to community, lifting up people's voices, supporting them in it, their voices in places of importance at policy tables and other tables, and really providing this constant loop, which is our environmental justice commitment. Just to note that this is the 30th anniversary of the environmental justice, the first people of color leadership, environmental leadership summit from 1991. Uh, you recently you wrote some of your reflections to President Biden on, on this, but uh, can you share your reflections on this moment and why we need to really be wary of these false solutions and even uh, tackle them? Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. So first, it's just an honor to share the panel with old and new friends. So much respect for, for you all. So thank you for, for that. And as you were saying in the beginning, Ananda, it is good to be home with people who, who share a similar analysis, a similar view, speak a similar language on these matters. And, and speaking of kind of language and framing and analysis, one thing I really appreciated about this, this the Hoodwink in the Hot House book is the way it uncovers 
how people are using language and in, in ways to to shroud what what the actual goal is. And as you say, working with frontline communities, uh, it's been constant a constant battle to keep in front of um, and help to to dismantle the false narratives that are being put across with these false solutions. I mean, things like nature-based solutions. Who doesn't want nature-based solutions, you know? And so it sounds so awesome, you know? It, it sounds like you're talking about biomimicry. It sounds like you're talking about leaning into the natural um, systems of, of, uh, of our ecosystem. And then as, as Tom said, you look under the hood and you see what's actually being, being done there. I really appreciate the efforts of all of these authors who have come together with the Hoodwink book to uh, booklet to demystify the the actual other motives that are behind some of these technologies and so forth. So, I, I just really wanted to to lift that up. And as I'll talk more, of course, about the the uh, false solutions that we were talking about in the in the memo to the Biden administration. But in kind of opening, I just wanted to kind of pay homage to to this volume and what it's done for helping to to provide the tools that we need to to help to educate and to um and to reverse miseducation um, that that's being advanced by people who are peddling these false solutions so thank you back to you Nanda. that was jackie patterson at hoodwinked in the hothouse she mentioned her memo to the biden administration urging him not to promote false solutions However, she did not take the space to quote from it just now, so I'm taking a moment to do it for her. Here are a few excerpts from Memo to the Biden Administration What Not to Do on Climate April 21st, 2021 Begins with a letter There is so very much at stake Between climate change, COVID-19, the economic crisis, and racial injustice. You could say we are in the midst of a syndemic, an interconnected series of epidemics with shared systemic roots. Unless those root causes are addressed, crises will continue to sprout like the heads of a hydra with marginalized groups the most impacted. Climate so-called solutions that ignore these interrelated challenges will not be effective or just. Here are some of the all-too-common false solutions, omissions, and past patterns we must avoid. Number one, carbon pricing. Carbon pricing allows polluters to pay a nominal fee or sell and trade the right to emit greenhouse gases. Too often, this results in polluters increasing emissions in places where it is cheapest to pollute, intensifying the lethal poisoning of black and indigenous people of color communities. Propping up polluters. Strategies that subsidize harmful natural gas, nuclear, biomass, biofuel and carbon capture and sequestration are largely driven by the need to pacify powerful constituencies and supporting investor-owned utilities. It's not just the energy sources that are problematic. 
we can't continue to support a failed business model that lines the pockets of investors and CEOs. These are just three of a dozen false solutions assembled by Jackie Patterson and sent to the Biden administration in advance of the climate summit in Glasgow. Now back to the moderator, Ananda Tan, who's introducing a speaker from Canada. Next, I'll uh, introduce uh, my friend Ariel. Ariel Derage, the director of Indigenous Climate Action. I had the privilege and honor of working with Ariel and her co-conspirators I'm using. I'm, I'm, I'm moving away from terms like founders, but amazing group of young leadership that are uniting a very diverse and a very complex field of Indigenous activists, grassroots movements, communities, elected leaders, you know, elders across uh, so-called Canada, the unceded territories of so many Indigenous nations up here north of the Medicine Line. And as a sister alliance to Indigenous Environmental Network, it was quite a lift. And I, I it was amazing just the blood, sweat and tears that Ariel and others have put into the foundation of this incredible new platform that's lifting up young leadership. It's one of the most dynamic groups that I'm witnessing grow and um, you know, the, the amazing creative work that they're doing, both on the front lines of supporting direct action, where the pipelines are being built at the legislatures, where people are passing false uh, solution policies, but also in, in organizing, educating, creating tools. So uh, Ariel, um, please, uh, please join us. What are your thoughts, opening thoughts? Thank you. Um, so thank you so much for having me as a part of this panel discussion. As you know, false solutions, they have really inundated the spaces in which, you know, state or colonial leaders are really trying to drive climate solutions. I'm really glad that this conversation is finally coming to a forefront that is actually has like momentum built around it, that we're now seeing this really broad sector of intersectional movements from, you know, women's groups to Black liberation groups to the Via Campesinas to the Pacific Islanders to all of the different struggles that have been rooted in justice for our people. And justice comes in so many different forms, whether it's like land justice for reparations, whether it's land justice for communities for getting our land back in North America or Turtle Island, whether it's the movements of um, fighting against the deeply, deeply entrenched racial discrimination and racism and white supremacy that exists throughout the Americas. We are at this forefront where the climate justice has intersected with everything. And when we talk about justice, we really need to look at what a climate justice framework is. So we were asked, and it kind of didn't happen, but I'm going to read the paragraph because I think this is an important context. So this is in the introduction to Hoodwinked in the Hot House. A climate justice framework does not reduce the climate crisis to a puzzle simply focused on counting carbon. Grassroots, community-led movements around the world look across the economy at the exploitation of land, labor and living systems, at the erosion of seed, soil, story and spirit, and seek to lift up real solutions around us every day, from indigenous traditional knowledge, food sovereignty, decommodification of land, healthcare and housing, to abolishing the military industrial complex, seeking to extract the last dredge of fossil fuel from Mother Earth. 
from just transition and energy democracy were democratized, decentralized, detoxified, and decarbonized energy powers, powers our lives to transformative justice where we respond to the violence and trauma with compassion and healing, not policing, punishment, and prisons. I think that when we talk about that and you read that definition of what a climate justice framework looks like, and again, this is in the introduction to the Hoodwinked in the Hot House report, you start to understand that the solutions that are being put forward by colonial governments, whether in the US or so-called Canada or in any of the colonial countries, which is basically all of them at this point, let's be real, that these systems are not holding those at the values. We heard on the historical context that when we talked about, you know, early agreements for climate for addressing the climate crisis in the Kyoto Accord, for example, it reframed. We talked about all of this stuff at the Rio summit in 1992 about the fact that we need to be talking about seeds and soil and people and humanity and, you know, coming back into relationship with each other and with the land. And that was distorted and skewed into the, having a conversation that relegated the climate crisis to an economic discussion. And what we're seeing now being driven across the Americas and across the world are false solutions that uphold and support a, an economy and a system that does little to actually reduce the emissions while safeguarding economic systems, including big corporations and big governments that are in bed with these corporations to continue to railroad communities, marginalized folks, uh, indigenous peoples, black communities, and all of the other folks that have been, you know, disempowered and disenfranchised from these systems from the very beginning. So far, you know, there's a lot of these conversations. And as Tom said, we're seeing this repackaging. We're seeing this, this appropriation, really, of indigenous ideologies that we have been fighting for and advocating for within these structures to push back against these economic structures to say that we need to be listening to nature. We've talked about natural law. We've talked about our relationships with the with Mother Earth. And those have been, again, once again, appropriated, repackaged, and recommodified as nature-based solutions, carbon offsets, blue carbon, all of these different structures that do nothing but continue to commodify the natural world and allow big polluters to keep polluting and allow the those that are in power to stay in power and do very little to address the justice frameworks that I just spoke about at the beginning. We need to be looking at ways to recenter ourselves, our relationships, and separate ourselves from this economic structure and remove it out of the conversation. If we are going to address the climate crisis, we cannot do it from an economic perspective. And one of the things that Indigenous Climate Action has been doing over the last couple of years is we've really been looking at how we can begin to unpack what decolonizing climate policy can look like. And so we recently released a report that looked at Canadian climate policy and it's called Decolonizing Climate Policy in Canada. And it investigated the shortcomings and problems associated with Canadian climate policy while at the same time supporting and developing Indigenous-led climate policy. Climate policies by and for Indigenous people that will raise up and empower Indigenous-led solutions. And this is so important because we have to be looking at deconstructing and the undoing of current systems to create 
space for our own independent processes and plans that are built around this holistic, interconnected, balanced approach that's based on relationship, reciprocity, and respect for each other and the natural world. And so within that context, like within Canada, you know, we're often looked at as this, this you know, sort of nice country <laughs> um, by a lot of folks. But the reality is, is these same solutions that are being driven forward that we hear about by you know the big ugly country the United USA these are we're, we're doing the same thing here in Canada except we package it really really nicely with indigenous peoples and the indigenous peoples within Canada the government is parading things around like indigenous protected and conservation areas as a way to broach both truth and reconciliation by allowing indigenous peoples to have the ability to manage conservation zones, but those conservation zones are being underwritten by big corporations, Shell, Exxon, Suncor, Syncor, some of the biggest operators in the tar sands are underwriting these conservation offset programs that they're then going to be using once we have developed a mitigation strategy that they're hoping for that can be utilized not just within Canada as a way to offset their emissions, but within the international systems that are being negotiated at the UN level. And so we have to be very careful about when colonial governments give us or hand us a so-called olive branch as marginalized communities, as disenfranchised communities where the systems were never created for us or by us or with us, that when they hand these opportunities for us, what is the hidden agenda? We have to constantly be thinking about what is the hidden agenda behind government suddenly just very like, oh, we want you to manage your lands and territories because it benefits them and it creates the optics that they're doing something. But at the end of the day, the colonial governments still determine which areas become conservation offsets. They would never give the conservation offsets to the Wet'suwet'en clans that have been fighting for the protection of their homelands, even though it is a rich biodiverse region that deserves just as much conservation and protection as other areas that have been listed in this country. But because it has already been, you know, titled to a corporation for exploitation, it does not get it. So they're only giving what they feel is going to benefit them the corporations and the entire system of false solutions to be pushed forward that continues to railroad and marginalize our communities. So we have to move forward and support each other. We have to support each other in this movement for liberation from false solutions and liberation from capitalism, liberation from white supremacy. Thank you, Ariel. Finally, I you know last but not least, I'd love to introduce uh, our sister and comrade Monica, Monica de Oro of the Micronesia Climate Change Alliance. I've come to know Monyeka recently in collaboration through the Climate Justice Alliance, uh, where we are on a couple of policy working groups and working groups together. I've really been impressed by her clear voice. And it reminds me of how our movements really truly need to be intergenerational so that we can carry on passing on the work we've done, but also that we could think of our strategies in a continuum. Because when I hear clear, crisp, you know, unwavering voices like Monica's in our movement, it, it reminds me that that there's much hope in, in, in the work we pass on and, and the new leadership that's stepping into these roles and challenging and contesting these spaces in ways that make our movements real. And Monica uh, can share a lot about what's happening, especially in her home communities and the Micronesia and the Pacific Islands. Monica, over to you, your reflections on this moment. 
Mafre, Guahusi Maniaka Dio, Genini and Tului Pacificu, Islas Marianas, Magusuts at Gaigiham, Gaigizuts and Hamzu. Hi, everybody. I'm so honored to be here. Uh, as Anada said, I come from Micronesia and I'm not sure I wanted to share some images for people to know how magical of a homeland and home seas I have. It's about 2 million square miles of homelands and seas for um, under a million people. So it's not really well known. I live in the islands of the Marianas, which is made up of Guam and the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas. And uh, yeah, also in Micronesia, there's Palau, there's Republic of the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia, and as well as Kiribati and Nauru, but most of the islands are affiliated through compact agreements with the United States, or in my case of our of the islands of the Marianas is territories or uh, modern day colonies, and I really wanted to bring the experiences of the people in the Pacific on the opposite end of the world where most of you are to this conversation because our experiences with climate change are so dire compared to Asia and where the US is. It also has some dates of how long um, we've been affiliated with and colonized by the US, including the Hawaiian Islands and some of the Samoan Islands. So people from the Pacific are on the front lines of climate change. Uh, we are at risk of experiencing more storms uh, and the intensity of the storms have been increasingly hard. I'm on the island of Saipan right now. And in um, just a few years ago, they were hit by the biggest storm in over 100 years called Super Typhoon U2. I'm in quarantine right now. So there's an announcement. I apologize for that. But we also have a whole loss of homelands as a threat to our islands. There are places in atolls in the Marshalls and the Federated Sites of Micronesia that are lower than three meters high. And within a hundred years, there's the absolute threat that these, li these lands may be gone forever. And of course the ocean is so important. It's the, the source of life for us in the Pacific, all water is a source of life. And the threats to the ocean and the health of the ocean are dire in, if warming increases. Um, especially to coral reef systems. And then of course, all of the, the fish life that rely on coral reefs. And of course, the people in the Pacific contribute very little to this crisis. We don't emit very much carbons. We don't use very much. And it's really unfortunate that our voices aren't very, very much listened to or heard at these international talks. And especially my people, because we're territories of the United States, we aren't invited to even regional talks in the Pacific about our uh, mitigation plans or adaptation plans to climate change, and definitely not in any sort of way that uh, would bring justice to my communities. One of the biggest things that face my community, especially throughout Micronesia, is just our relationship and our, our historical issues regarding colonization and militarization of our lands. Because we are between Asia and between the US, we're often used as pawns between the world superpowers. And here you see some photos of nuclear bomb testings in the Marshall Islands. And then of course, World War II ravaged and completely damaged most of our homelands throughout the islands. And war is still being heavily pushed as economic um, solutions in our communities. I come from Guam and half and a third of our island is uh, used for military use. And right now the US is uh, 
is creating firing ranges over our single sole source of drinking water. And these firing ranges will undoubtedly lead to lead contamination of this water. And these are over sacred sites. They're, they're demolishing ancestral sites that were used for thousands of years by my ancestors without any free informed and prior consent because we are a US territory and there's not being much done by the UN or by others to really put pressure on the United States to support the decolonization efforts of the Chamorro people on Guam. And this military encroachment and expansion is happening here in the Marianas and in the Northern Marianas where they want to expand bases in the islands of Tinian and Pagan. And of course, this the Pacific means peace and war has been waged throughout our islands and also our islands have been used for war and our bodies have been used for war because enlistments rates throughout Micronesia are so high and even in, in the state of Hawaii and also in also places like Okinawa. And for the United Nations to not recognize the emissions of the military um, entities of, across the world is a great travesty to this climate justice movement. War is really fueling the warming of our world. Uh, it's really important to hold these entities accountable. The US military is the single largest consumer of fossil fuels. All the fossil fuels that are being pushed through the pipelines that are being resisted throughout Turtle Island are coming to my islands so that they could be fueling jet fuels and bombing pristine islands just north of here in Fernando Mendoniza here. There's so all of these things are interconnected and it's really important that we do what we can to bring peace to our communities, real peace and real genuine security through doing the things of principled practice, through realizing the just transition and through being and uplifting the indigenous people around the world and not seeing that by the governments not seeing that at the United Nations Conference of Parties is really disheartening for, to me as a young organizer, but I really find a lot of hope in these sorts of conversations and these uh, on the ground grassroots movements. And I really hope that more can be done for us to push this political power to, to really decolonize, decarbonize and demilitarize our planet, because those are real climate solutions that can be brought forth through just transitions and other principled practices. That was Monica de Oro. She is Just Transition Fellow with MCCA, the Micronesia Climate Change Alliance. Monica presented, along with Ariel de Ranger from Canada and Jackie Patterson from the U.S., at a webinar organized by the New School in New York City in cooperation with the IEN, the Indigenous Environmental Network. Their goal was to expand the already existing alliances and research in preparation of the Climate Conference in Glasgow. The 42-page pamphlet that is the result of two decades of research, analysis, and active resistance to oil drilling and mining and deforestation and hydropower that floods precious land is entitled Hoodwinked in the Hothouse. Resist false solutions to climate change. It can be downloaded for free at climatefalsesolutions.org. That's one word, climatefalsesolutions.org. 
LibriVox.org. Jackie Patterson, Ariel de Rangier, and Monica de Oro had much more to say, so you can look forward to one more installment of their exchange on the next broadcast of TUC Radio. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. Our email address is tuc at tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelerden. Thank you for listening.